Hello and welcome back to the Exchanges Discourse Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. Now we are a companion podcast to the Interdisciplinary Exchanges Journal, which has been published for the last 10 years by Warwick's Institute of Advanced Study. Now in most of our episodes, we are talking to authors who have published with the journal about their research, about their academic publication experiences, but also asking them about the advice they've got for new academic authors. On occasion, we also focus in on journal developments itself. In today's episode, we'll be talking with one of our past authors about their paper, about their work, and about their thoughts on publishing too. Well, we're back once again uh, with Exchanges Discourse podcast, and I am t- delighted to say I'm joined once again by one of our authors, Connie De Silva. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. Very excited to be here and particularly to meet you in person. <laughs> oh, thank you, Kelly. Well, obviously, uh, Connie and I are talking sort of uh, about as far away as it's possible to be from each other today. So, Connie, tell us a bit more about yourself and uh, what you do. Well, I'm in Melbourne. I'm at uh, Monash University, in, which is a university in Melbourne. And uh, I finished my PhD a couple of years ago, and I'm in a postdoc, which goes for another two years. Mm. And it's um, a publications-oriented opportunity for me to publish mm. Uh, mm. a series of articles and a book-length manuscript Uh, i'm loving it but i also am in industry so originally i'm from the publications industry Mm -hmm. working as a um, book editor so i've always been under the um, education umbrella writing a few stories for educational readers and i still work in community in community education designing and delivering what we call um, pre-accredited and accredited courses for low English literacy. Mm, And mm. they might have a LOAT component, which is a language other than English, like Mandarin. Uh, It might be designed for an employment pathway, like I recently developed and delivered an introduction to Health for Women. And I've also worked um, with people with cognitive and intellectual challenges and children with learning disabilities like Tourette's or attention deficit. And so very interested in the greater scope of education beyond academia, Mm, mm. but very much from the lived experience Mm, mm. where I'm thinking, how can I apply what I have learned into um, an applied dynamic in community. Well, that sounds like you have got a diverse portfolio of skills and experience there. And that's always always good to hear. Speaking of some of myself, who's come off a very <laughs> unusual route to where I am today. <laughs> Started out a scientist and, you know, moved then gradually through the social sciences into the cultural domain. So uh, it's always nice to have someone like to talk to who's had such a, a you know, variety of experiences. Now, we've got you on today to talk about, of course, the paper you published with Exchanges, which uh, came out in our birthday issue. Um, If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, folks, um, there is a link to the paper in the episode description below. The title of the paper itself, of course, is The Rise of Conceptual Association and Linguistic Register as Advertiser Persuasive Instruments, an Australian Study of Press Artifacts, 1800s to 1950s. Well, it's a great title, Connie, but in your own words, it's a long title. 
there's nothing wrong with a long title. I like a long title. I mean, when, you, when you're talking to undergraduate students you know, and some of them only read as far as the title, it tells them what it's about, I think, this one, importantly. But in your own words, tell us a bit more of what the article was about. Well, it began with looking at medical advertising, which is something that I'm very curious about, mm. particularly the way in which we're so drawn to non-evidence-based cures. And searching through what we call here the Trove database, which is mm. a digital archive of newspapers from about 1804 into um, today, it occurred to me looking at the conversations that were going on in the letters to the editor and with the little announcements made by the colonial government and the advertisers that looking from 1800s through 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, 60s, that the style of writing had changed. Mm, mm. And it moved from being rather verbose and flowery into very succinct. And so I began systematically to look through the earliest newspapers uh, I also have a journalism background and mm, newspaper mm. history was one of my electives. So I applied that methodology and I discovered that advertisers um, did not always use the concept of linking ideas and leaving substantial information unsaid. Mm, so today mm. we rely on memes and images and um, little aphorisms like mm. pithy little mm. slogans and observations but that didn't happen in the past so then i began reading all the ads and the words and i discovered that we didn't always use abbreviations and symbols in language and in the australian data set in about the 1930s abbreviations and symbols began to come in and they were borrowed from um mathematics from mm, algebra mm. and so on you know like the therefore symbol mm, mm. and then in the perhaps around 1950 the medical advertisers began to link ideas of benefits and uh, prestige and ideas of social aristocracy mm. with the curatives that they offered, such as, say, Holloway's pills mm. and uh, those whole bunch of them. And so I pegged the appearance of conceptual association and the, the use of symbols and abbreviations to between about 1930, 40, and 50. Mm. And since then, it's become very conceptually efficacious mm. to use as little language as possible. And so language becomes a very um, flexible power tool in communi communicating ideas where we want you to believe what we want you to believe. Mm. Mm. And it's drawn from, historically, it's drawn from the human belief system. So the, the advertisers and any kind of rhetoric really is very cognizant of what drives us as humans. And that's how marketing works. Mm. It builds up market segmentation. 
So over time, what we find is, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, advertisers learned how to target um, the sick, the elderly, um, the fashion conscious, and then later the gay and lesbian market. Mm. So mainly it began with women, targeting women, because Mm. women were who held the purse. They were the purchasers of the white goods, the men's ties, the children's clothes, food. It's interesting because I've I've recently been going through my late father-in-law's papers and he was an inveterate collector of magazines and things and discovering he had materials from his own father and and grandfather. So I was reading this, uh, it was a magazine from the um, 1895, the Chums magazine, and seeing the style of the adverts in there. Now, those adverts were aimed at children, but it was as, you know, that's sort of very, very basic language. It was used, you know, have these sweets, they are delicious. You know, that was as far as it went. It wasn't trying to create a feeling or an emotion or any kind of level of effect. And as I say, so different to the adverts we see today. Well, that that was interesting. Have these sweets, that's command language. Mm. And that's very common in advertising where they will give you an order or an instruction. As So in medical advertising, that's very common mm. because it takes on the persona of the doctor, mm. authoritarian figure that you would not question. And the other very popular style is the interrogative, to ask a question. Mm. Mm. Questions always require an answer. So you'd very, very often find a sort of an anxiety-building interrogative, like, are you mm. nervy? Mm. Mm. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I desperately need this pill. <laughs> so in, in the what you said about the Chums magazine, mm. those British magazines mm. are an absolute treasure trove mm. of information of the history of ideas. Mm. So mm. we're often today asking the question of, I think there's a television series called Where Do You Come From? Mm, mm. And they interview people and they talk about their ancestors and they... Ah, who do you think you are? Who do you think you Mm. are? Yes, I don't watch it, but it's very, very... um... My wife is addicted to it, so... (laughs) Yes, I've heard some people just absolutely love it. But my question always is, where did that idea come from? And um, if you trace the, I first came across this um, history of ideas through Isaiah Berlin, who was, some people say is a Marxist, Marxist, I'm not sure what his Mm. political leanings are. And when I started digging into the history of ideas, I I found that, um, you know, Mark Twain um, Mm. said that uh, there's no such thing as a new idea. We're just rehashing the Mm. old ideas. We just put them into, he said, a kaleidoscope and see what comes out. So this has been said many times over. And so this is what drove me to try and dig up where did conceptual association come from? Mm. When did we um, start using this very succinct language? And it's, I think it's particularly pertinent in medical advertising, mm, mm. in how we become um, seduced by the idea of, you know, complementary and alternative mm. medicines, which um, are non-evidence-based, and we have a different ethos here to the United States in the way that we label our medicines. Mm. It's a little more flexible in the USA than here. I don't know 
how it is in the UK. I suspect we're closer to Australia than we are in the States. <laughs> well, tracing the history of alternative like Ayurvedic medicines and homeopathy, they've got a history of, you know, some thousands of years because mm. they come out of cultures like ancient in India, ancient Greece, ancient Rome. And what's famously known as the water cure, which later developed into hydropathy, mm. that goes back to the time of Cleopatra. She used to bathe in those mineral waters in the Dead Sea. I think they were sulfuric. Mm. I've been to Bath um, in England and taken the waters there myself. And my Lord, they stink of sulfur. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. So, um, I mean, one of the things I discovered about doing research into materials from hundreds of years ago is that the, for one thing, you know, we, I was saying before, you know, there are no new ideas, but the interesting thing is there are new words mm, and words mm. change their meanings. So in researching the water cure, we have taking the waters. So if you simply search for water cure or hydropathy, you're not going to get the whole story mm, mm. because you will not get the data related to taking the waters. And in fact, hydropathy as a curative is often attributed to Vincenz Presnitz mm, um, mm. in Austria. But there is evidence that in um, perhaps maybe 1625, there were women in England who were practicing this art of taking the waters, and they were called the spa women, S-P-A-W mm. women. I haven't found that anywhere in the literature. I found mm. it in some illustrative examples in the Oxford English Dictionary, and I'm, I'm very curious about this because... Obviously, this art comes from hundreds of years ago, and I suspect Cleopatra was practicing it. Mm, mm. And the other interesting thing is that, well, two interesting things. One is to do with medicalization, with us discovering that, you know, something is actually a medical uh, condition, um, alcoholism, for example. Mm and some cognitive disabilities, some intellectual um, challenges. And uh, the other is the rise of the professional classes. So going back a long time ago, let's say, um, well, to England, um, where, for example, the English dispensary was mm. set up, I think that was in 1690, and people were just starting to think about, you know, the efficacy of medicines and so on into the 1700s. So 1700s um, was when there was a whole bunch of, you know, nostrums and patent mm. medicines mm. and so on floating about. But it wasn't till about the maybe early 1900s that there was this rise of the professional classes. And from there on, it was taken over by men. Mm, those mm. societies and professional associations. And so to come back to hydropathy, the in America they set up some kind of hydropathic association and there's no mention at all about the role that women played 
in this particular art of healing. Well, I'm working on a paper on that now to make oh. that connection between the spa women of the 1600s. Mm. That's interesting because I was, I was going to ask you, you know, what, what are you working on at the moment in terms of your next papers? And you're starting to answer for me. Thank you. <laughs> it's on the water cure, mm. the historical um, genesis mm. of going back to the time of Cleopatra and then with the rise of the professional classes, it became a world that was um, organised and delivered by the male practitioners. Mm, mm. But one of those interesting things about the English dispensary, which was set up in 1690, we were talking about medicalization before, mm, and there's mm, lots of you know women's illnesses that we now know are not due to hysteria. Mm, in in so the ethos of that. Uh, medical um, English dispensary was to ensure that the lame, the impotent and the sick were cared for and that they could receive um, free medicines, consultations and therapy. There were the apothecaries and then there were the, um, what they called, I think, the physics, the doctors. Mm -hmm. There were three ailments that would not be covered by free medical care. One was the pox syphilis. The other was um, cutting stone, which is removing kidney stones. And the third was midwifery. Mm. You could not get free medical care if you were carrying a child and mm. needed help with childbirth. And strangely enough, even today, Mothers very often um, don't get any postnatal care. And even with prenatal care, um, it can be very difficult. Recently, um, the Midwives Association, I cannot re recall the name of the group, it's, it's an Australian group of midwives mm. who are lobbying to bring back the what's called the water birth. Because mm. women, mm. women find it um, more comfortable, less painful, more relaxing. It's um, It must have been popular at some time, but then it was something which was driven in the world of women. It mm. never quite reached um, the orthodoxy of, you know, the medical faculty. Mm. Mm. So that's part, of, um, that's part of the new paper that I'm Excellent. working on. Excellent. Well, one of the things we always do like to ask our guests here is not just about their own paper experiences, but the advice they've got from early career practitioners in terms of the publication. Have you any sort of pearls of wisdom you'd like to share with us for you know those who might be approaching their earliest papers? Well, um, there are a few things with which you know I've I've now published a couple of papers mm. in a you know a handbook chapter and I've got some peer review articles as well. Copyright is an issue if we want to use artifacts. Absolutely. Um, so if you if you are using something that is covered by copyright, particularly an image, so in an advertisement, mm. even if it's an old advertisement mm. where the company is no longer operating. Um, there might be copyright in the image. There's also copyright in the words, unfortunately. Um, so I was very lucky with my first article, which was published with Exchanges. My 
copyright came through for me from all my sources, but you have to allow about three months. Mm. Mm. So you should really start applying for the copyright um, when you start writing the paper. With the Routledge Handbook, miraculously, Routledge handled all the copyright for me. So if so, you should ask your publisher, could you help me to with the copyright? Um, the other thing is choosing your journal. Mm. I would always go for a peer-reviewed journal if that's possible. Because in in Australia, if it's not a peer-reviewed journal, it can't really take you mm. very far. Is it the same in the UK? It is. It is very similar, certainly in terms of sort of research assessment exercises and the like. It's always, you know, oh, it's your peer-reviewed articles. Although there are arguments that say, you know, it's better to be published than not published at all. <laughs> I quite agree. Mm. Um, it all depends on um, what you need to take your Absolutely. take you a little bit further. The other thing is in picking your journal, if it's a journal that belongs to a society, mm. you may be less likely because there might be uh, a certain flavour um, mm. of the article. So you should just read journal articles very carefully. And you, mm. if, you're, if you're pitching to any journal, you need to cite their writers. Mm. Mm. You need a very concerted search within journal issues, special issues, and um, it's really going to enrich your article if you know what's published. And I would always say, you know, look into the historical genesis of where that came from because that adds something new to your article mm. and every journal editor loves something new and then when you've told your story how are you going to sum it up is there some further direction that you know this in which this could be developed Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Connie. Well, I can see the timer counting down here on Zoom, so we're, we're going to be running out of time in a few moments. So I'm going to say thank you so much for coming and talking with us today about your paper, about your publication and your work. It's been really, really interesting. And if folks haven't had a chance to read it, do remember there is a link to the paper in the description below, and I would really, really recommend you reading it. It's a very thank interesting you. article. Entirely my privilege. Thank you very much. And of course, I'd like to thank my guest for coming in to talk with us today. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Exchanges Discord podcast with myself, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. Now, if you wanted to find out more about the Exchanges Journal, the publications we've been discussing, there, of course, are links in the episode description. You can also find us easily online by searching for Exchanges Journal Warwick. Of course, if you have a question or want to get in touch with me directly, you can reach us by email as exchangesjournal, it's all one word, at warwick.ac.uk. And you'll also find us on Twitter, Blue Sky and Mastodon too. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, don't forget to share, like and subscribe to make sure you catch every single episode of the Exchanges Discord podcast.